Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. I hardly need to say we've got two guests today, Vincent Bevins. We'll talk about the decade of protests, 2010 to 20, and Hagai Matar will offer an Israeli leftist view of the horrors in Israel-Palestine. And now the decade of protest. In May 2020, Vincent Bevins was on this show to discuss the Jakarta Method, his book on the U.S.-sponsored strategy of mass murder during the Cold War. Vincent is out with a new book, If We Burn, The Mass Protest Decade and the Missing Revolution, from Public Affairs Books. It's a study of the large protest movements in 10 countries throughout the decade 2010-20 to that began with extravagant hopes and ended up with things little changed or even worse. For example, an uprising in Brazil that began in 2013, sparked by an increase in bus fares, was thrilling, but it ended up severely weakening the social democratic government of Dilma Rousseff and paved the way for the rise of the right-wing maniac Jair Bolsonaro. And the Egyptian manifestation of the Arab Spring began with a mass mobilization to get rid of a dictator and ended in a military coup and a government possibly worse than the original one the uprising was directed at. Through over 200 interviews and lots of reading, Bevins develops a theory. If an uprising does little more than create a power vacuum, that vacuum will be filled by the best organized forces in a society. It's a very impressive book. Vincent Bevins. You open a book uh, with a history of the origin of what we now just see as kind of normal, mass protest. What, What is that history? To write this book, I tried to tell the prehistory of a lot of tactics, the repertoire of contention that becomes dominant in the 2010s. And I think it's important to recognize that human beings have a lot of ways that they can respond to injustice, that they can respond to problems in their society. But everything that we do comes from somewhere. It comes from some specific historical and ideological place. And I think it's important to remember that until about the 50s or 60s, it would not have seemed natural for most human beings on the planet to protest. This is something that came about in the middle of the 20th century as a really dominant form not only because of the emergence of mass media and because some groups starting in the US, in the UK, but also quickly around the world, realized just how powerful media could be for reproducing images of protest and how much further their message could get if they were in the middle of big cities and cameras showed up as well. You know, if we think back a thousand years before that, it wouldn't have made a lot of sense to protest in the middle of the capital of a city or the capital of a country, I'm sorry, if only the people that were actually there would see it. So I thought it was important to start not only with the history of protest uh, as a dominant and really obvious form of contention, but all the other ideological and tactical elements that come together by the 2010s, which is where the book really starts its history. Now, you look at 10 countries all around the world, um, many very different from each other. What are the commonalities among them, though? I look at 13 countries and then I end up deciding that 10 of them fit the criteria that I have invented for myself. And the criteria that I come up with is mass protests that become so large that they fundamentally destabilize or indeed dislodge an existing government. There are some things that are common across those countries because I select them for those commonalities. But also those commonalities come from a real life process of inspiration and transfer of knowledge that happens in the 2010s, starting after the uprising in Tunisia that successfully overthrows the autocratic government there. Egyptians are inspired by what has happened. Egyptians learn from what has happened. And throughout the rest of the decade, you get the reproduction of certain tactics and certain themes, and often very importantly, the reproduction of the interpretation of events on the ground by people in the media like me, sometimes when it's the right way to look at things and sometimes when it can be very misleading. So what tends to be the particular type of protest that I think becomes hegemonic, if not indeed appearing uh, apparently natural uh, around the world, and especially for people like me in the mainstream media in the English-speaking world, is the apparently spontaneous, digitally coordinated, horizontally structured mass protest 
in public squares or in public spaces. And, and in the book, I try to trace how each of these elements arises and put them together as, as the package. This is the, the easiest way that I have to, to summarize the particular recipe of attempts at political change that comes together in the, in the mass protest decade. Central to all this was the internet, which was celebrated, especially in the early days, played by U.S. officials, uh, Hillary right. Clinton, loving Twitter as bringing democracy to the world. Absolutely. People have changed their attitude towards the social media, but it's, it's really kind of hard to recall that moment of social media utopianism of 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, I mean, I find that even for those of us that lived through it, it's hard to remember. And for I find that for younger generations, for people that didn't live through it, it's impossible to imagine that 10, 15 years ago, the dominant common sense wisdom, especially in the US liberal press, especially in the Democratic Party, was that social media was going to make the world more democratic, more progressive, it was going to lead to more transparency and freedom, just definitionally as a matter of course, just if if something was caused by social media, that was necessarily good. Uh, if you fast forward 15 years later, you get basically the exact opposite interpretation. If you can imagine the way that we would think about or that the liberal media would cover a mass of young people, especially men, swarming on some nation's capital because of something they saw on the internet, that would probably raise a lot of red flags uh, in 2023. But this things were very, very different in 2010. There was a real pervasive techno-utopianism, which overlapped with strains of libertarian and indeed anarchist thought. Which paradoxically kind of led everybody to believe that the internet would make things go their way, even if they had very different visions of what the future would be. Um, yeah, that is a fundamental part of this story, although I think it's only one of the things that gets us over the line, one of the things that makes it possible that so many of these mass protests get big enough to dislodge or disrupt existing systems. This trajectory of the reputation of uh, social media is not unlike the political trajectory of, of some of the uh, uprisings you write about. It starts out uh, in a great moment of excitement and idealism and ends in, I think, seven of the 10 cases you really look at closely with something worse. How did that happen? That's a long story. And I hope that actually reading the history of 2010 to 2020 is the best way to answer it. One thing that we learned slowly over the 2010s, and, and this is one thing that there's where there's overlap both with social media itself and particular tactics, is that tragically throughout the 2010s that we learned that these tools, not just social media, not just a particular type of tactic, in this case, the visually coordinated mass protest in, in public spaces, these tools can be used by anybody. There is nothing inherently ontologically progressive about a tactic. We learned slowly over the 2010s that the right can do mass protests in Brazil. This is indeed what happens. The far right learns in 2013 in a massive street explosion initially caused by anarchists and leftists. The beginnings of what we now recognize as the Bolsonarista movement, the extreme right president of Brazil, they learn that they can do mass protests too. Some people back in 2011 were warning, hey, you know, social media is a tool. Yes, progressives can use it. Young people can use it. Maybe it's the case that the first people to get online, and I think there is sort of a generational shift that happens. Maybe it is the case that the first people that get online happen to be young progressive people, but like governments are going to figure out how to use this too. Reactionaries are going to figure out how to use this too. Intelligence agencies are going to figure out how to use this too. And slowly we realize that there is nothing definitionally progressive about any tool or any tactic. It depends who uses it and in what context. Some of the theory behind these uprisings, so there's not a real sophisticated theory of political change. We just all assemble someplace and other, increase in numbers, increase in numbers, and then something would happen to make things, one hopes, better. There was a real lack of a fundamental strategy at the core of it, though, wasn't there? Yes. And this can be, I think, somehow chalked up to ideological reasons and ideological approaches to the ideas of progress and what would happen if the people all came to the street. On the one hand, there was a deep assumption that all of the people coming to the streets would just lead to something good. But there's also just the unexpected success of this particular type of mass protest. A lot of the people that came up with the, uh, this particular approach to political change never could have seen just how many people it would put onto the streets. When far more people end up accepting this very open invitation to join a mass protest explosion in defense of really whatever each individual wants to bring to the streets as their own particular cause, this creates opportunities that had not been planned for. So many people came that you often were able to create a power vacuum. Either a government was dislodged or a government was so afraid of being dislodged 
that they really would have been made, willing to make concessions to the street movement if, if necessary in order to, to shore up their position. But this was not something that this particular type of mass protest movement could take advantage of. There, they hadn't planned for it. There was not a theory of how to do this. There was not the concrete structures that would allow for either a new sort of revolutionary government to be formed in the case of uh, more extreme examples where the leader fled or indeed just to turn around and say to the scared government, okay, this is what we want. And if you give it to us, we will go home because there was no one to do that. But there was also a bias against representation and agendas. Nobody could say here, this is what we want because nobody wanted to be the one to speak for everyone else. Yes, there was two things that combined in different ways in different countries. You had both the explicit rejection of representation, the belief that there should not be anyone that can speak for or should speak for the mass protest movement. And in some cases, this is more explicit. So in Brazil, you had the Movimento Passe Livre, a explicitly horizontalist group that put together the explosion uh, in June 2013 that brings far more people onto the streets than than ever expected. Um, And this is a group that did not believe in representation or leadership. In other cases, it is less ideologically intentional. In less cases, you just have the concrete decimation of all of the structures that would have allowed for representation, the concrete decimation of all of the civil society or union or party organizations that could have played this role. This is more the case in Egypt, a lot of the Egyptian revolutionaries had been working very, very hard behind the scenes to create organized working class power, organized political movements, working with workers outside of Cairo to foment a wave of wildcat strikes. But when the moment came, decades of the destruction of real representative structures under neoliberal economic policy and authoritarian government meant that the street movement was unable to do it, even if many of the original organizers would have liked it. Now, there's a strange moment here because media representation, as we, we spoke about in the beginning, ends up mattering not only to the way that these movements are represented to history, to the rest of the planet. Media representation matters to the concrete configuration of forces on the street. And in the case of places where there was concrete horizontality or where representation was impossible or difficult because structures had been decimated, often people like me in the foreign media saw what is a weakness as a strength. They chose to see sort of utopian strains of anti-representation politics or utopian memories of 1968 in Paris, when in reality, that's not what was happening on the ground. And uh, that was not proposed explicitly as the best way to organize in countries like Egypt. I'm speaking with Vincent Bevins, author of If We Burn from Public Affairs Books. Speaking of the mainstream media, um, you spent many years working for very um, distinguished uh, organs within the mainstream media. And that process of picking spokespersons or symbols gets a lot of people on the outside of the media think there's something sinister or conspiratorial about that action. What's the mechanism? How's that happen? Yeah, that's. I think that's a really interesting question. And I think that like... Part of the reason I put myself in this book and part of the reason that I focus on the media is because I have this particular role that I think allowed me to sort of explain not only how it works on like a moment to moment, minute to minute level, but also to speak about the ways that my class and indeed I myself failed in these moments where we had to very quickly come up with an explanation as to what's happening. The media ends up changing the meaning of what's happening on the streets without having a plan to do so or without even really understanding that they're doing it. At the end of the book, I speak with the mayor of Sao Paulo, who uh, Fernando Haddad, who's now a major figure in Lula's government. And I speak with members of the original uh, left anarchist group that really put together the street explosion that form in Brazil that forms the core narrative of the book. And they all agree that it doesn't really happen in a conspiratorial way. What happens is when there is the crackdown, I'm using the Brazilian case in his example, but I think this helps to explain the larger dynamic in many other countries. When the crackdown happens in Brazil, the media flips from saying for several weeks, oh, this is a group of punk anarchist troublemakers that need to be cleared off the streets. When the crackdown comes and it hits journalists themselves in the Brazilian mainstream media, they choose to flip their narrative. They change their narrative to saying, actually, this is a patriotic uprising. Uh, This is a good thing. Now, in order to say why it's a good thing, they have to come up with things that make sense in their own 
deep ideological framework. They have to come up with reasons that already exist sort of in their mind as to why a protest movement can be a good thing. And while the original movement in Brazil wanted to decommodify all public transportation, wanted all uh, bus rides and metro uh, trips to be free for everybody, they're not going to come up with that as the reason. So they just kind of supply, they look upon this very difficult to understand, this what I end up calling fundamentally illegible explosion and looking for elements that allow them to tell their readers or their viewers that it's a good thing. This is a dynamic that I think that is reproduced in Tahrir Square. Like, for example, in Egypt, uh, a lot of the people that I just described as being very smart revolutionaries that believed in forming organizations, that believed in creating working class power, that had worked behind the scenes for years and years to put together what became the the explosions of January 25th and 28th, were sort of horrified to see that the global media would show up and pick somebody that would say what sort of CNN viewers wanted to hear. Or, and this is a dynamic which I think we're all more familiar with now, but it was very shocking at the time that like somebody that was quite good at posting on Twitter or Facebook ended up becoming a de facto spokesperson for the movement um, just because they went viral a couple of times. I don't think it's less insidious that there's not a plan for the media or indeed corporate social media to redefine what's happening on the streets. It's because the the outlets with the biggest microphones that show up are asked in a very short period of time to come up with the reasons as to why this is a inspiring thing. And of course, there's also the very important dynamic of when they show up and they decide that it's not a good thing. And it's very, very easy for them to look out onto a mass explosion and find elements which they can use to prove that the thing is bad. But I think this is the dynamic is that Journalists, which are called upon to, to provide an explanation in like two hours for the street explosion, which is a world historical task and privilege that never should have been handed to people like me, but was led to this strange process of looking for whatever we already believed when we gazed out upon the, the streets and the squares. No, but on the other hand, um, your experience as a mainstream reporter um, actually contributes to some of the strengths of the book. As Alexander Coburn once put it, he was a real journalist. He uh, went places, talked to people, asked them questions, wrote down their answers. That is kind of falling out of favor for economic reasons. And Yeah, that's, that's the real reason. Yeah, people would love to do it, just no one wants to pay for it. And so people just sit at home on their computers in London or New York and just sort of regurgitate what they're seeing on their screens. But, you know, you really just do learn a lot by talking to people. And uh, that that's being lost in this new media world where it's all about opinions and hot takes and, and all that crap. There, there's a lot wrong with the old mainstream medium, but um, <laughs> it's also a loss. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think there's I think even in the, the so-called golden age of the mainstream media it was demonstrably imperfect. That critique, I think, is very well understood. Television stations and newspapers in the second half of the 20th century had a tendency to reproduce narratives that serve the interest of the, of the ruling class in countries like the United States. But then this is a theme that comes up in the book. You know, just because something is, prob- is, is already deeply imperfect doesn't mean that it can't get worse. And I think that <laughs> mainstream media has gotten worse just because of the, the, the obvious fact of less resources. So doing what you just described, you know, providing opinion and hot, ta- hot takes is a more cost efficient and more rational way to devote resources to media production. Then what I was very, very lucky to have the privilege to do, which is run around the world for four years, go to 12 different countries, sit down with 225 people, get to know them really well, decide which stories would, would come together in a way that would could create hopefully a powerful uh, and human narrative. No one gets to do that anymore. And that's not because I think of, again, a conspiracy or because of the already existing incentive structures which distorted uh, journalism in the 20th century just because we're running out of money and people, they're required to read the internet and then write back into the internet immediately without actually adding anything to the picture because that's all there is time to do. And I think this contributes to the the failure of my class in the mass protest decade. Uh, We do not have the intellectual or material resources to interpret what's happening on the streets. Now, at the end of these 225 interviews, a lot of people came to the conclusion that this particular approach to mass protest has a weakness in that it relies too much on people like Vincent Evans or Anderson Cooper to represent to the world what's happening. We wish that we could have spoken with a more unified voice. But yeah, absolutely. (laughs) The changing business model, if there even is one anymore for international journalism, contributed to the failure of my class. 
Right now, it's like the New York Times and then everyone else uh, in the U.S. media. It seems like there's going to be one newspaper for a while. I don't want to sound provocative, but I think there's the possibility that journalism as a human activity could end. I don't think that there is necessarily a market solution to the decline of journalism as we understood it. It's in the last four or 500 years, the journalism that was sort of very important to the development of bourgeois revolutions and indeed to the development of democracy that overlapped with the period of the profitability of printing as a means for distributing news. I think that it is possible. I think that it is imaginable that economic structures change in such a way that journalism stops. I think that in that case, in that very extreme situation, people will still do stuff that they pretend is journalism. Oligarchs running what are essentially newsletters, uh, in support of their own pet ideological projects. There will be massive corporations running PR campaigns and pretending that all of that is journalism. But it wouldn't be journalism in the way that we understood it in the 20th or even the 18th centuries. This, I think, overlaps with one of the themes that emerges from the interviews at the end of the book. You can't just count on history to provide a solution. If you see something that is a real problem, you have to get together and, and create a solution to really construct the answer to it. I think if we care about democracy, we care about journalism, we have to think about how to not only preserve this very imperfect thing that we had in the 20th century, which I think is pathetic the way we look back to the 20th century and try to just go back to a model which was obviously already very problematic, but to create a type of really democratic journalism, which will allow for us to understand the world uh, over the next you know, 100 years or five centuries. Let's talk a little bit about um, countries that took different paths. Egypt, for example, it all started very hopeful and ended up with something at least as bad or worse. Brazil, there was that Bolsonaro interlude, but now Lula is back and things are going not so badly. How do you explain the different trajectories in those two countries, aside from the fact that they're different countries? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this is a fundamental point that I always want to make. Very understandably, you know, people want to know, well, like, what happens? What's the answer? And one big part of the answer relates to this dynamic that I discussed at the very beginning is that the, the ways in which social media allowed us to transfer inspiring images and solidarity was a fantastic thing in the 2010s. But often we saw a copying and pasting of tactics from very different countries to very different circumstances in ways which ended up being a real mismatch. The Brazilian mass protest event in 2013 would not have gone the way it did if people in the media and indeed on the ground did not interpret it as if it were something like the uprising in Egypt, which was very strange because the uprising in Egypt was meant to dislodge a dictator. And in that situation, the military stepping in and taking control seemed like it was better than what came before. In the case of 2013, you had a democratically elected popular social democratic president who came from a history of struggle herself. And it was just very strange. Nobody really knew what to do with this particular interpretation. I'll get to Egypt and Brazil specifically, but just as a general yardstick for interpreting what happens, the narrative that I come up with, a sort of quick image that emerges from interviews at the end of the book is that this particular repertoire of contention was very good at creating power vacuums, but often failed to fill them. So the answer as to what happens tends to be who ends, who fills that power vacuum, who's around to step in. The reason I spend so much time in Egypt, I think, is I think that Egypt could have gone different ways. It's not one of these cases where if you look like, oh, well, that wasn't going to work out. That was They always had a very, very uphill climb in front of them. In Egypt in 2011, what actually happens is that the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, the military essentially steps into the power vacuum, and then they put on elections. And a lot of people in the original revolutionary movement don't really trust that these elections are going to be real. There is very little time to put together a unified, progressive, secular candidate. But it seems in retrospect that if they had, they might have won the first election. It seems that if you had time to put together and really coordinate an electoral strategy that the revolutionaries could have in the broader sense won. Um, if you put together the secular leaning and progressive leaning candidates, they do not. The Muslim Brotherhood wins. And then quickly, reactionary Gulf monarchies work behind the scenes to coordinate a new protest movement to help to uh, incentivize a new protest movement, which of course has a lot of support from local elites in Egypt as well. And that just leads to a military coup. In Brazil, what you happen, what you have is not the full uh, dislocation of Dilma, but you she loses quite a lot of popularity. She is weakened in a way that she never recovers from. And then in ways very differently than the original left anarchist protesters would have hoped, 
to the degree that she loses power, to the degree that that power becomes more available because it's taken away from the ruling left of center PT, it does not fall to the anti-authoritarian left. It falls to people on the center right or the far right that realize that, oh, there's an opportunity for us to step into this pressure cooker, into this strange movement in the streets and create our own right-leaning protest movement. And indeed, we can pretend to be kind of the same guys that had generated so much real widespread sympathy in the country. We could pretend to be horizontalist and leaderless and grassroots and uh, apolitical, whereas really we have quite a well-funded and coherent strategy for taking power and moving the country in a right-wing direction. And they're not the only actors that matter in, that, in doing so from 2013 to 2018, but they really are a big part of it. But then we had the return of Lula after all that. And, uh, you know, there are disappointments, but uh, it's not a bad regime as regimes go. Oh, no, absolutely. So this is very important. So I think two things are important in the Brazilian case. One, things are worse. Lula's back and Democrats, lowercase Democrats, people that believe in democracy in Brazil, have been able to breathe a huge sigh of relief uh, ever since January 2023. The coup did not happen that Bolsonaro obviously wanted to carry out. There is a process to reconstruct institutions and the economy, things are still much, much worse than I would have ever imagined they would be in 2012. The, the country took a really difficult and dark turn, and it's going to be a long, difficult road to put things back together. But two, you're absolutely right. And it is the ultimate victory of the seriously organized, powerful structures in Brazilian politics, the Workers' Party, their deep base in the union movement, their ability to form alliances with other parts of Brazilian society, including the middle class, even to some extent business elites, the strength of long-standing strategic social movements like the MST, the, the Brazilian uh, Movimento Sem Terra, that account for the ability of democratic forces to just barely sneak this out at the end of 2022, despite all of Bolsonaro's attempts to cheat and indeed destroy democracy. Things got a lot worse than we ever would have expected. But it was the longstanding and determined organized forces in, in the Brazilian left, center left, that accounted for ultimate victory. Finally, I feel like it's, it's a bit of a cliche to end with this kind of question. The moral of the story is, but I'm going to do it anyway. What did we learn from this decade? How can we do it better in the future? A few overlapping themes and overlapping responses come out in the 200 and something interviews that I do. One, we already discussed the, the real need to pay attention to local particularities to indeed, yes, draw inspiration from other movements in history around the world, but to pay very close, close attention to the actual structures of your society and what your theory of change is. But an easier, bigger, very common way of summarizing the answers to my question is organize. Organize now. The time to create organizations that are capable of fighting to build a better world is always right now. If you want to build the future, you should build organizations in the off-season. You should build organizations when it seems like nothing's happening, when it seems like there is no immediate chance for improving society, when it seems like nothing is going on. Because the general rule is that the people that were most organized and best positioned to act truly collectively with other human beings when the explosion came were the ones that did best in shaping the outcome. That was Vincent Bevins, author of If We Burn, just out from Public Affairs Books. He'll be giving a talk in his book on Tuesday, October 17th at noon in the Social Science Matrix at UC Berkeley. For more info on this and other appearances around the U.S. and later Europe, see the book's website, ifweburn.com. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of Mad Rush by Philip Glass, performed by my old neighbor, Bruce Brubaker. It's heartrending to see a fresh outbreak of violence in Israel-Palestine. 
Hamas's initial attack was horrific. Killing hundreds of civilians who bear no direct responsibility for their government's action is a crime, and it serves no good purpose to deny that. But warmongers have been hammering away at the theme of terrorism in order to justify an extraordinary display of violence by Israel. And they've been using it to discredit anyone pointing towards over 50 years of occupation and apartheid that have left Palestinians desperate. To help sort this all out, here's Haggai Matar. He's an Israeli journalist and activist and executive director of Plus 972 magazine. 972 is the international calling code for Israel and the occupied territories. The magazine is the product of Israeli and Palestinian journalists, whose goal is to, in the magazine's own words, spotlight the people and communities working to oppose occupation and apartheid. Haggai Matar. The emotional state of you and people around you. I mean, you know, it's people I know are in a terrible state and we're thousands of miles away. It must be just uh, really um, very, very difficult to be living through all this. Uh, What's it like? It is. I mean, I think we're all very much in a state of shock. The surprise that something like this invasion could happen. We haven't seen anything like this since 1948, basically. There's that. There's the horror of the stories that are coming out from friends and family, people just sharing the atrocities and so many other stories being published on the media and social media of the massacres of hundreds of people in their homes or at a party, dreadful things, including children and and everything. And then there's the stories about what's happening in Gaza now. And through all of that, you know, there's still rocket fire that's constant and trying to manage day-to-day life, you know, school's off, so taking care of my kids and navigating his terror from everything, trying to calm him down, trying to manage work as a journalist in all of this. It's a lot. It's a lot. How is the Israeli left, which I understand is really not a very large formation, reacting? Um, here it's somewhat like 9-11. To analyze uh, what happened is to excuse it. You must condemn. No subtleties allowed. Um, what's it like uh, around you? Yeah, I think it's very much like that. Anyone that tries to offer some context, not in order to justify the hideous war crimes, but in order to explain that they're not, as has been presented in mainstream media, unilateral attack. That's not what we're seeing. You can't say that uh, when we're talking about Palestinians that have been under apartheid rule for decades, and specifically in Gaza, people who have been under this terrible siege causing extreme poverty and hopelessness on top of just lack of electricity, water, and the occasional aerial bombardment that kills families and destroys homes. I mean, you can't say with that context, you can't say that this attack is unilateral and unprovoked. But if you try to mention these things, you know, you, you immediately get shut down as um, a justifier of, of heinous war crimes. As I recall, the 9-11 environment, too, it's just um, people were expected to get caught up in this jingoistic um, war cheerleading. It became almost, you know, an emotional requirement to uh, have nothing but unreserved support for your country's military. I guess Israelis are used to that feeling, too, but it's just um, the eeriness of the repetition of those feelings right now is, is, is really, really striking. There's also a flip side to that, and that's where, and, and we've seen things like this over the past decade with Putin and with Assad looking at other parts of the left parts of the pro-Palestine movement and, you know, seeing people that are rejoicing, people that are saying, this is what liberation looks like. This is a celebration of Palestinian victory on the way to freedom, not willing to recognize, either not willing to recognize the fact that people that were massacred or people that were abducted, many of them were children, most of them were civilians, people that are, you cannot see as legitimate targets, either refusing to accept those facts or accepting that those are facts and saying, yeah, decolonization is a messy business and that's the way it should look. No ability to criticize these things either. So being torn between uh, the obligation for some to be supportive of these acts or by others to renounce them in full, but at the same time, support the military reaction and the campaign against Gaza, it leaves a very small space in between. And and that's also um, very lonely on top of all the the rest of the 
horribleness. Israel's response has been extraordinarily brutal. What's it like to see what your country is doing? It is extraordinarily brutal in many ways, but also a continuation of so many of these campaigns on Gaza we've seen before. This is by far you know, not the first, second or third such campaign we've seen. We're almost used to this routine of massive aerial bombardment of entire families being wiped out, entire neighborhoods being wiped out. These are things we've seen before. I think this time the the kind of addition of cutting off all electricity, water, fuel, and supplies is making things much, much harder. We're just in the beginning of that phase of the extreme siege that they started yesterday. The ramifications of these moves for a population of 2 million people is going to just get worse regularly, but it's a continuation of things we've seen before, not something that's entirely new. This is a perverse thing to say, but I imagine some of there are a lot of forces in Israel that are actually quite exhilarated by this. They uh, can now freely do what they've always been wanting to do. Yes, of course. There's definitely a political camp that's saying, now we're vindicated. We've been telling you this whole time that Palestinians are subhuman or they're animals. And we have the right to go ahead and either flatten Gaza, erase Gaza. Like these are terms that have become really mainstays in popular discourse right now. They're being spoken freely by former generals and politicians and and media people. People saying we should either flatten Gaza, we should initiate a second Nakba. That means the ethnic cleansing of uh, Palestinians throughout the country. And you have Itamar Ben-Gvir, our Minister of National Security, who's really advocating to kind of take the war into mixed cities inside of Israel and target Palestinian citizens of Israel, as we've seen in, in 2021. It's something that he's really eager to do. So really broadening that campaign and settlers in the West Bank have been targeting communities there much more than than usual. Uh, Just today, three people were killed in a settler attack on a Palestinian village. Definitely, a lot of people are capturing on this moment to try and make their old visions of ethnic cleansing uh, reality. An Israeli friend of mine says that he thinks that uh, Netanyahu's ultimate goal is Iran. What, What do you think of that? Iran is definitely part of this story, part of the context of this recent Hamas attack on Israel, I think, was the, um, what we've been told is the impeding normalization deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia being the most important, largest, last Arab state to not go down the road of the Abraham Accord started with uh, Trump and Netanyahu. And, and now, if Saudi Arabia was to sign this deal with Israel, that would really mean for Palestinians that they have lost all of their allies, or at least people who said they were their, their allies in the Middle East, uh, which would be a huge blow for the Palestinian cause, leaving them you know, without friends, without allies, and without bargaining chips, because the idea of normalization with Israel used to be something that was a bargaining chip for Palestinians in negotiations. So I think that is part of the context. And obviously, with Saudi Arabia, Israel and the US coming ever closer, one could see why Iran would be supportive of this attack by Hamas and encourage Hezbollah in Lebanon to to get involved as well. I don't think that Netanyahu is going to target Iran. I don't think that the US is going to let him. I don't think the Israeli public is going to let him. There's a lot of outrage at the government right now. It's flunking in polls even before the recent developments. And now they're just, you know, they needed to bring in today, actually they brought in uh, some of the opposition for an emergency national unity government just to maintain some sort of legitimacy and to bring in some professionals to lead the campaign because otherwise it it just became non-sustainable the way the government was operating. So I don't think that a campaign against Iran is very likely. Going into this, there was a substantial uprising against Netanyahu. Um, he was looking weakened. You know, he's facing all these criminal problems. What does this do to his standing? Is he somehow now restored or um, will these troubles linger? I think his troubles are only getting worse. You have a small um, kind of diehard, you know, your, your equivalent of, of 
MAGA people here that are like, you know, whatever happens, it can't be Netanyahu's fault. You know, if, if this happened, they would start running conspiracy theories about a deep state conspiracy between the Shin Bet, the army, and Hamas, who collaborated to bring on this calamity so that Netanyahu would look bad. I mean, that's kind of the, the narrative on the right, on the far right. But I think your average Israeli, including voters of Likud, are, you know, he again, he was losing in the polls anyway for quite some time now because of the, the, the authoritarian bend the government was taking in policies against Jews. Now, with this latest development, he's just lost faith of a huge part of the population in a very uncommon fashion ministers in the government have not been going to funerals or to hospitals since the attack on Saturday. The two ministers that did go to visit were basically uh, yelled at and, and chased out of the hospitals and the funerals that they went to. That's how enraged people are at the government right now. That's the pre-existing rage or is there rage over um, the intelligence failures uh, that led to the attack? It's the intelligence failure. It's also perhaps, you know, being very, very cautious about the use of the word, but, you know, a, a positive development in all of this that has two layers. One is a massive rejection of the settlement project because everybody is talking about the fact that just days before the attack by Hamas, almost the entire army brigade that was supposed to guard the border with Gaza was redeployed to the West Bank to defend settlers that were setting up new outposts and initiating attacks on Palestinian villages. So instead of being there protecting civilians on the border, soldiers were going to support settlers attacking Palestinians. So that is really registering for people as a point against the settlement project. And I think after about 15 years, 20 years, that the whole notion of negotiations and, and a peace deal with Palestinians has basically gradually gone off the table. In the last elections, it was became a non-issue with 110 out of 120 members of Knesset basically support sustaining the status quo or attacking Palestinians further. No one was talking about peace. I think after this attack, that's going to change. People are feeling much, much more vulnerable obviously, with you know 1,200 people slain in this attack over just one day. So people are realizing we have to go back to talking about and perhaps with Palestinians, and we need to do something about the settlement project. So all of that matched with the intelligence failure, matched with the uh, anti-democratic and theocratic tendencies of this government. And after the attack started, we've seen a series of failures in terms of government managing the crisis. Put that all together, you really get uh, the perfect storm for Netanyahu in terms of losing grace with the Israeli public. I'm speaking with Hagai Matar, executive director of Plus 972 magazine. This could play out in any number of ways. So I could imagine a certain portion of the population would just, this would intensify their de desire to eliminate Palestinians, just eradicate them. And then it might inspire some people to say, okay, we really need to grow up and cut a deal, uh, talk peace. How do you see these things playing out? It's really, really too soon to say. I think already in the protest movement over the past year, we've seen this tendency to go back to recognizing that we have a problem. People that have been out demonstrating sometimes several times a week for democracy and equality gradually came to real the realization that you can't have those protests and ignore the fact that there's been this apartheid regime here all along. You can't protest for democracy, for Jews only, that the contradiction is, is just too great. So we've already started seeing people go back to recognizing that we need to talk to Palestinians and, and promote a just solution. I think for some, this is going to increase that tendency, but also, and perhaps for even more people, hatred of Palestinians is going to be on the rise. What I'm imagining, and again, this is way too soon to, to really definitively say where this is going, but I'm imagining a political camp that will come up with a demand of complete and utter disengagement, which would mean something like a second unilateral disengagement, this time in the West Bank, demolishing most settlements and setting up very, very high walls on both borders, 
basically telling Palestinians, we're done with you, do whatever you want in the territory that we gave up, but anything that you do to us from now on will have the most dire of consequences. Like, look at what we're doing to Gaza right now. That's what's going to happen every single time that anyone, either in the you know news stated in the West Bank or in Gaza, does anything, we're going to come at you full strength. So it's not about peace, but about disengaging and very violently. And what is happening in the West Bank? It's gotten lost in all this attention paid to Gaza. Well, the West Bank has, has been deteriorating into chaos for, I would say, more than two years. We had a, a spike in violence in 2021 during what was called the, the Unity Intifada, of Unity Uprising of Palestinians. Uh, and ever since, there's been an increasing level of violence. We have seen before this attack on Saturday, this year has seen the most Palestinians killed in the West Bank since the second intifada of the early 2000s, uh, the most Israelis killed in violent confrontation with Palestinians or passing attacks on Israelis. So that has been a trend that's been ongoing anyway. The Netanyahu government has basically been saying to settlers, you can do whatever you want to Palestinians. You can set up outposts on privately owned land. You can attack Palestinian villages and soldiers will accompany you. And if Palestinians try to resist and defend their homes, literally their homes that are being set on fire by settlers, we will shoot those Palestinians who are defending themselves. That's where the government has been at. So obviously that has caused a lot of more violence with the Palestinian Authority almost becoming defunct. We're seeing Palestinian communities in different cities set up kind of local national guards, uh, local collectives that are armed and, and defend themselves against soldier raids and settler raids or would go on attacks against soldiers and settlers independently as local initiatives. And that too has contributed to, to the increased violence. So all of that has been happening in the West Bank for some time now. How does the broad Israeli population see the settlers? Some sort of lunatic fringe or what? Well, I think there's settlers and there's settlers. I mean, the vast majority of settlers in the public discourse are not seen as such. I have family members who live in settlements. They're actually, you know, in, in the Israeli public discourse, they're seen as a suburb of Jerusalem. These are people that are not ideologically driven. They went there just for a quality of life, the same price of uh, a very, very small flat in Jerusalem. You can get a house with a yard in a very nearby settlement, just 10 minute drive from Jerusalem city center. So people like that, according to international law, they're living in settlements and, and they are settlers. But in Israeli public discourse, they're not seen as such. And that's the vast majority of settlers. And you also have your minority of settlers that are ideologically driven. And I think they are much less liked by the broader population. Uh, people are not happy seeing Jewish people going on rampages and just burning Palestinian houses. There's been a lot of pushback against that. In the public discourse, in the protests, people are outraged and saying this is not who we want to be. It's kind of hard to think about right now in the midst of all this conflagration, but um, what, if any, outlines are there for some kind of long-term solution to this problem? You have a lot of pundits over here saying that the idea of a Palestinian state is now dead. One state, two state, what what do you see as a possibility and what would your preference be? What I feel like is missing most are, are guiding principles for a solution. In the US, it's very popular to, to have these arguments between one state and two states. I think here on the ground, first of all, until now, people were just not willing to recognize that there's a problem to be solved. So they didn't care much for that discussion at all. But beyond that, I think you can have either one state or two states that are a complete catastrophe. Um, you can have one whole state that's just an apartheid state. You can have two states that are kind of like what I was describing before, where the Palestinian state is surrounded by walls, suffering from poverty and the occasional Israeli bombardment and actually is not independent or free in any real way. That would be a Bantustan, essentially, right? Exactly, like a, a Bantustan state. And, and I think either of those solutions would, would be catastrophic. And what is really very much needed and we should be really, really pushing for is a recognition of several basic principles, you know, that everyone who lives here deserves to be a part of the decision-making process on what the solution is and that that solution should guarantee 
a life, a future, safety, democracy, equality, and justice for everyone who lives here, including the refugees that have the right of return. If we don't have those principles as kind of those uh, guiding light as we go into a political process, then I don't think any solution would do. I think right now, on the one hand, you can say the two-state solution is dead. Many people have been saying this for a long time. As a history major, I, I feel like you know, things can happen when people want them to happen. Nobody imagined a million French people living in Algiers, but things can happen. And once Israel becomes committed to solving the problem here, a two-state solution could happen. I think right now, with the hatred that the two peoples have to each other, a two-state solution, either as a long-term or even an um, interim solution, probably makes more sense. People just don't want to live alongside each other. Israelis don't want to live together in the same state with uh, the people who just massacred them. And Palestinians don't want to live together with settlers who are taking their land and torching their houses. So I think to a degree, two states make sense. But again, I, I, I would go with whatever the majority says under those agreed upon values. What about the domestic Arab population, which is, what, 20% and growing? Yeah, I mean, that, that population is also Palestinian. That is one of the reasons that one of the solutions that's being proposed beyond the one or two state solution is a confederacy, where there are two states, but separate institutions based on nationality. So Palestinians that are Israeli citizens can also belong to the Palestinian state, a very complicated solution, um, not entirely unlike the solution in Northern Ireland. That population is also suffering from deep discrimination and uh, in recent years, under policing that has allowed for the rise of organized crime to just take over entire communities and the death toll from gun violence in Palestinian communities within Israel is staggering. It's the levels of Jamaica and parts of Mexico that are completely overtaken by organized crime syndicates. So that's where Palestinian communities are inside of Israel. The previous government actually tried to start taking care of that and had some success. But now with the minister in charge of police being the Kahanist Itamar Benvel, they've stopped all attempts to free these communities from organized crime. And it's just devastating. That was Hagai Matar, executive director of Plus 972 magazine. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, a piece of music I often turn to in time of war. Christoph Pedorecki's Threnody for the Victims of Hiroshima, performed by the Polish Radio National Symphony Orchestra, led by the composer. Till next week, bye.